Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Audio Book Club for the month of September 2015. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words Correspondent, and I'm joined in the D.C. studio today by our chief political writer, the exceptional Jamel Bowie. Hi, Jamel. Hello, Katie. And we're really lucky to have the brilliant writer, critic, and Audio Book Club stalwart Megan O'Rourke calling in from London. Hi, Megan. Hi. We'll be talking today about ta Coates' Between the World and Me. This is a huge book, and it has reverberated hugely. It takes the form of a six-chapter letter from Coates to his 15-year-old son, Samory, written in the wake of the announcement that police officer Darren Wilson would not be indicted for murdering an unarmed teenager, Michael Brown, in Ferguson, Missouri. I'm going to quote a bit from Jack Hamilton's lovely review in Slate. After noting that the inspirational figure behind the letter conceit is James Baldwin, who opened the fire next time with a similar missive to his nephew, Hamilton writes... Between the World and Me is not so much a work of counsel as a lovingly, painstakingly crafted inheritance. If Coates' first book, The Beautiful Struggle, was Coates explaining his father to himself, Between the World and Me is Coates explaining himself to his son, and in doing so, explaining as best he can what it means to be black in America. So I thought this was a really beautiful capsule summary, but let me turn it over to you, Jamel. What is your capsule summary of Between the World and Me? I think that comes uh, very close to what mine is, which is that this is a book. It's not just sort of what being black in America means to Coates, but it's also sort of trying to explain um, the visceral experience of being black in America. What the sort of persistent and through time uh, prevailing feeling of physical insecurity has meant to what it's meant to be black and and how that has shaped Coates' sort of beliefs about himself, how it shaped his like basic ontology of the world, and how he thinks it should inform his son's experience of the world as his son goes out into adulthood. Megan, do you have a capsule summary? One thing that interests me about this book, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about, is that in many ways it's a polemic, right? But it's a polemic that also is quite lyrical mm-hmm. and I think is quite literary in a way that many polemical, argumentative think pieces or long essays are not. And it's a testament to Coates's really wonderful writing that he can do both of these things at once. And it does seem to me that that creates all these very interesting, slightly murky spaces where the reader is involved very actively in deciding what kinds of meaning to take away and deciding how to kind of live the questions that are raised here. And I thought that was a a wonderful part of the book. I think that this visceral, the the word Jamal used is a wonderful word. It's really a, a book about the kind of lived experience of being in the body 
of a black man in America in this day and age. And that seemed to me a really wonderful way of trying to get at all of these questions that many people have talked about in other ways. Yeah, I agree. And the reason I'm asking for sort of like the book jacket summary, something very small, is because I think it's really worth digging into what exactly this book wants to be. Because as you say, it definitely exists in a tradition with James Baldwin and sort of the elder in a family dispensing wisdom to the younger generation. But I think it also slips free of that tradition. It's almost novelistic, I think, um, Mm -hmm. in the way it sort of creates artistic unity out of character and place and theme. And I just, it was not what I expected to read based on reviews I had seen before I opened it. Yeah, it's partly a memoir, really, too, mm-hmm. right, isn't it? I mean, it's it's sort of a hybrid text in that way, a sort of polemic and very much taking inspiration from Baldwin, but using memoir as a way, I think, of almost as a, as a short story might or a poem might to get at aspects of experience that were Coates to deal with them more frontally, I think would be less resonant. Right. I think this is especially true in Coates' sort of recounting of the story of his friend Prince Jones. Um, and also in Coates' recounting of his time at Howard, two very, you know, you could easily imagine those chapters in the memoir, but here, placed in the context of this polemic, they both add force to the argument. Mm-hmm. And I think they do, I don't know, like, I'm, I, I don't read a lot of novels, so I, you know, <laughs> my sense <laughs> of um, the language of this kind of literary analysis is not, you know, not too great. But I'll say that they do really enhance the literary qualities of the book. In a lot of ways, those passages, if the letter format seems drawn uh, or is drawn from James Baldwin, then those passages very much remind me of Richard Wright's Black Boy. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was a piece that came out, I think, two days ago in the Los Angeles Review of Books, which often publishes long and sort of thoughtful pieces. And it's a piece by Matthew Shinoda um, that actually takes issue with this thing that we're praising. I think he finds the kind of memoiristic elements of the book, the way that the Prince Jones story is handled in this kind of, you know, more literary way, problematic. And it sort of seems to suggest that it's both interesting and limiting and that he feels that a sort of more scholarly approach. He, the sentence I'm going to read to you is, let me read you two sentences because I, I was arguing with them and I wonder if you do would too. But he says, it is the story of Coates as a friend to Prince Jones who was brutally murdered at the hands of the police like too many black men. It is ultimately an intimate and at times embodied narrative. In all these ways, between the world and me can be seen as both interesting and limiting. And much of what I've read about the book struggles with this. To try to dig deep into systemic racism without getting, quote, scholarly is not an easy or perhaps even a wise task. So to me, I think there are some tensions in the book that I hope we're going to talk about, but I thought actually the the digging into racism without getting scholarly was actually a fabulous task for him to, but probably not an easy one. The way I felt about it is that he's speaking to us on a different level and perhaps like the project of enlightenment for his readers is not so much to like learn new facts intellectually, but to like really appreciate on this sort of more immediate and elemental level what it's actually like. Because I think a lot of white people in America these days could spout, you know, yes, it's uh zoning and here are all these institutional racist things and we know that intellectually, but I think it takes this gift of sort of lyricism and force in the writing to make us feel it. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that Coates uses words like plunder with abandon, right? Like plunder mm-hmm. isn't an especially academic word. It, it's a very evocative word. It makes you think of an assault. It makes you think of an invasion. And I think words like that are trying to very much communicate. And like you said, Katie, it is not difficult to find you know, academic material. And lots of people can recite and can talk about academic material. But even other African-Americans, younger African-Americans who may not have any direct experience with explicit racism or explicit sort of profiling or whatever, what have you, Coates's language, words like plunder really kind of emphasize the feeling of something being taken, which is, I think, the, you know, one of the themes throughout the book. I've read a lot of academic work on racial inequality, and that doesn't really come across. You can try to imagine it. Um, and, and the best work usually relies on some personal narrative to help explain kind of the feeling of loss. But I think this style really, in a, in a very condensed book, is, is very effective. Yeah, maybe we can read one of the passages that, at least for me, sort of brought home some of the theoretical themes that he's juggling. And I'm thinking about when he talks about slavery and he says, slavery is not an indefinable mass of flesh. It is a particular specific enslaved woman whose mind is active as your own. He's writing to his son, whose range of feeling is as vast as your own, who prefers the way the light falls in one particular spot in the woods. And he goes on and it's just this kind of equalizing move where the reader is brought to the exact same level as this imagined woman. And for me, that was sort of in microcosm what the entire book is trying to do. I'll say as someone who is in the middle of doing a project on slavery, part of our project is precisely to capture that, right? To capture the physicality of being enslaved, of being subject to this kind of brute force, and to remind people that so many of these stories of Jim Crow, um, of slavery in particular, are stories that we actually cannot tell because the people who experienced them could never communicate and never had a chance to tell their stories. And that these are real people who are now kind of, in a real sense, obliterated from history because of their station. And that that, that is important. I think that there is this way in which this trope of thinking about the body, right? He, he says to at one point to his son, what matters is our condition. What matters is the system that makes your body breakable. Hmm. In some ways, it's so simple, but in other ways, I think so deeply profound because it gets at this reality that he's trying to talk about, which is that every person who is affected by slavery, by Jim Crow, and by racism today, you know, every Michael Brown, every Trayvon Martin is a, as he puts it, a one of one. And I think that, again, the kind of visceral nature of this book is so important because as human beings, we have a very pernicious and problematic ability to kind of rationalize the way things are. Even as we're saying we know they're wrong, it's a kind of, well, that's how it is. So this person's problem is in some sense ordinary to that person, right? I actually kind of wrote about this when I wrote about grief, and it's something I'm thinking about now in terms of illness. But I think what's really brilliant about this book is the way, and really devastating and and very troubling as a reader, is the way it refuses to allow that rationalization to happen on the part of the reader and really reminds you of the kind of inexorable individuality of each person who is a victim. And then the individuality of each person who is part of the system that is allowing this victimization to take place. 
And I think also his lack of kind of sentimental religious belief really feeds into that. I'm thinking of when he says, the spirit and soul are the body and brain, which are destructible. That is precisely why they are so precious. And I think he just has such a an embodied sense of human beings. He doesn't envision any kind of escape from these realities. And the body almost is like a trap. It is beautiful. And he talks about how um, he goes to the Mecca of Howard and realizes that black bodies are beautiful. But I think he also really evokes the feeling of being imprisoned in your body, which means all these things that you don't have control over. I wonder if there are any passages that either of you want to linger over for a bit. There are definitely some I'd like to, but I have a couple of questions that I thought might be really questions I have and questions I would love to hear your thoughts on, Jamel, too. And, and so one question I have is about what seems to me sometimes to be a tension in this book. And I want to be careful about offering any kind of critical responses or, or even questions or pointing out tensions, because in some ways it seems to me that one of the accomplishments of the book and, and its point is to prod all readers out of complacency and to kind of make us struggle, which is a word that's really important in the book. But I think along the way to doing that, it raises lots of issues around which there seem to be some tensions. And I wonder what you guys think and if you agree. But one is this question of the relationship between the essential and the cultural that he spends a long time and in different ways comes around to. And a part of the book that I thought was really powerful was his description of being at Howard and talking about his education and this, his own kind of sentimental education and the sense of how his thinking changed and how there was this moment when he was dabbling in black nationalism and kind of thinking of blackness as something transhistorical and transcultural. And then this moment when that changes for him. So I guess Part of what I'm interested in this book is this way that he really wants to remind us that the way we think about race is really culturally constructed, right? He has a wonderful line that says, race is the child of racism, something like that, right? But then at other times, he has these very powerful statements about American history that seem almost essentialist, like um, that great line that's very famous that is really stirring, which he says to his son, here's what I would like for you to know. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage, right? Which is a very sweeping statement. And I think is meant to make us really evaluate how broad does that go? Does that include, you know, is that true for every American? So these are questions that I think maybe especially as a white reader, but maybe, you know, maybe a white reader and a black reader come to this and questions from different sides. But I think these are questions that the book is demanding that we try to grapple with. And I was very interested to hear your relationship to it as you read. Does this make any sense? <laughs> it does. Thinking of those two, those two guideback questions or those two ideas, I don't necessarily see them in tension because I think in mm. part he's making a historically grounded argument in right. literary language. There's a great book by a late historian, I think Edmund S. Morgan called, and I'm, I always mix up the, the order of the words in this title. So um, listeners, if I get it wrong, uh, you know, I'm sorry. But the book's either called American Freedom, American Slavery, or American Slavery, American Freedom. Yeah. I think it's the latter, but I always get it mixed up. Most of the book is is about colonial Virginia and kind of the particular social and economic and political developments of colonial Virginia from the arrival of English settlers to Jamestown to about like the, the early 18th century. It's very dry. 
But the final third of the book very much deals with the development of African slavery. And one of the things that makes the book really revelatory and important is that Morgan basically traces what Coates describes, that the system of enslaving Africans produced the idea of race. And it wasn't that Africans in the New World were enslaved because they were black. They were enslaved for a variety of reasons, many of them quite explicitly political. But in their enslavement, um, their enslavers began to create ideas of why they naturally needed to be there. And then, as, and so over the course of the 18th century and other sort of academic work, you really do see the development of what we would call racism, both as a political system and as a system of ideas about black people and Native Americans. Something people have critiqued the book for, and I actually wouldn't, is the fact that it doesn't offer up hope, right? It kind of explicitly remains in the struggle. And some of the most powerful moments, I thought, were moments where he talks about the fact that maybe nothing will change and that maybe this is how things are. And I guess that is the question I have is, is there a tension in the book between the very powerful alertness to the historical construction of race in America and the particular ways that race got constructed as a heritage in America. And it's kind of reluctance, which I, again, would say I found very powerful to sort of open outward into a possibly different future. I see what you're saying. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I see see what you're saying now. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Now, I actually didn't really experience that. I actually experienced that as a powerful part of the book, though maybe there were a few specific textual moments where I had questions, which we could talk about. But I think a lot of people have experienced that as a tension. And I just wondered what, what you two thought. That tension is there. And I, I do not think you can sort of look past it. And I think it's, yeah. this is a point where I disagree with Coates. And I disagree with Coates because, you know, in grounding things in sort of history and academic history, it's a way of emphasizing the extent to which things like the construction of race are entirely historically contingent. It didn't have to work out that way. It did, but it didn't have to. Mm-hmm. And it's worked out that way since then. That's what I think Coates means when he says that uh, the destruction of the black body is heritage, that at every stage right. of American history, black bodies, I prefer the term black people for various theological reasons, but destruction of black bodies or black people, always they, it goes into the mall, whether it's slavery, whether it's mm-hmm. Jim Crow, whether it's you know today's mass incarceration, just like black people are the first into the mall, into the Sarlacc pit. Housing segregation. Of, of history, yeah. I suppose. At the same time, the future is unknowable. And the fact that the future is unknowable should, I think, encourage a bit of epistemic humility about the future. Mm. That if everything is contingent, then that, that also means that also means the future. And hope in this sort of recognition of contingency isn't kind of a naive longing. It's a recognition of our fundamental humility in the face of the unknown. That because we do not know, therefore, we have grounds to hope. And that's where I disagree with Coates. I think I think he, a professor of mine, wrote a great critique that was published at The Atlantic, and he describes Coates' view as, as seeing white supremacy as not just a historically contingent part of the world, but a ontology in and of itself, that white supremacy yeah. is something that shapes reality, past, present, and future. And, and then if that's the case, then there is no grounds for hope. Um, but I do not think that's <laughs> yeah. the case. So I would, you know, I would strongly push against that. Look, I tend to think that way too, but then I started to think, God, am I just a naive person, right? I mean, I think this is the power of his writing that he does make you question, are some of the things you want to believe naive? Are they, you know, a way of, as he puts it, um, having a hall pass through history, right? Um, It's a wonderful line. 
I started wondering, and I wondered if either of you did, that you know he opposes hope and the struggle. And at various points, he says, perhaps struggle is all we have because the God of history is an atheist and nothing about his world is meant to be. This is not despair. These are the preferences of the universe itself, verbs over nouns, actions over states, struggle over hope. And I ended up coming to a reading, which, which may be over elaborate, where I thought, well, part of what he's trying to do explicitly is not offer prescriptions or answers so that the reader is left in that state of struggle with these terrible questions and terrible inequities, right? And that maybe part of the point of the book is to kind of activate that in you. I was a little bit bewildered by that passage just because the way I saw the division he was drawing was sort of abstract versus concrete. And he seems to be coming down on the side of the concrete and the verb and the action. But I felt like this book sort of lived in a world of sort of amorphous ideas and myths being sort of rifled through. I mean, for instance, he has these sort of charged words, the dream, the struggle, and the meanings morph. Like, they seem very uh, fluid to me. And I almost felt that, like, the beauty of the language was like a mini dream in itself and that it was easy to sort of lose yourself in the texture of it and the rhythm of it and sort of be born away and not struggle with what he was actually saying. Or maybe that was just a peculiarity in the way I was reading it. But I would have to wrench myself back to a more intellectual understanding of what was going on and say, oh, when he talks about losing his body, here is how he got from point A to point B to point C. The passage you said, Megan, the God of history is, is an atheist. I think that's in part an explicit repudiation of traditional narrative, about basically Whig history about black people, mm -hmm. right? That like, right. we shall overcome the American universe back right. towards justice. I think Coates is really trying to hammer on sort of the non-inevitability of time and of history of human life. That there can always be a dark ages and there's no guarantee that we're ever going to come out of it. But Definitely. I think this runs into your tension, right? That like, yeah. if history is contingent, then that actually leaves room for hope. That doesn't guarantee yeah. hope. It doesn't require hope, but it leaves room for it. And hope is not precisely because we know that things can get better, that there can be improvement, that while it's not inevitable, I've studied history for too long to think that the history of the universe, the arc of the universe bends towards justice. Right. Which is, seems like explicitly what he's mm -hmm. trying to right. argue against in the course of this book, very powerfully. But in terms of, his, to use his sort of construction we can move the universe towards justice, right? Mm. Like human effort can do that. And it's funny, this is more of an aside, but like Coates's atheism very much is a part of this book, but it's a very particular kind of atheism. It's an atheism mm. from, I think, and this this is like a sociological term, but like low churches and like low Christianity. And mm. in the world of like academic Christianity and academic theology, you see forms of the religion that are actually quite conducive to what Coates is saying. And it's just, mm. as someone who studied that stuff, it's kind of funny to me that it's it's at once a kind of atheism, but not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily in opposition to what Christianity is in sort of its million different forms. Do you think we can offer a compromise here and say that in this book, hope is disguised as anger? Because I feel like sort of the burning anger that he refers to a lot with Prince Jones and with his son who was shoved on an escalator and even in watching the smoldering wreckage from 9-11 and feeling cold, like I think there is an energy 
and a wish for change and sort of an outrage that change hasn't come in that anger that couldn't exist. I don't know if he was as hopeless as some of these passages make him out to be. I don't know that I would say that. But what I would say is that I think what he is explicitly trying to do is create a new vocabulary around some of these questions. And that vocabulary is this idea of the struggle, because hope can be co-opted in the same kinds of jingoistic ways that 9-11 was co-opted, right? Mm. That seems to me part of what he is trying to do. So it's not that he's saying there will never be any change, but the critique seems to be one can't assume there will be change. One can't kind of give oneself a pat on the back or, you know, go to a um, protest and say, we're making change because we don't actually know what the future holds. But that doesn't mean that it necessarily holds worse things to come. Right. I think, right? I mean, I Can don't we know. talk about them? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, 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 no. I've, I've been mouthing off. <laughs> no, but I want to hear what you want to talk about. <laughs> I would like to talk about the 9-11 passage a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. It's page 86, if you guys have the book. But Jamel was going to say something, and I'm very curious to hear what Jamel was going to say. <laughs> um, I think I was going to say that I'm not sure Coates himself comes down on the the hope or not question because I'm not yeah, sure. Exactly. Just just in, in reading the book, I was never sure if he was conducive to hope as, as a live possibility or if it was written out entirely. And in that sense, it's not clear what the struggle – is the struggle just the struggle for living your fullest life in spite of all of this, right. which doesn't necessarily mean you have hope for kind of the, the macro future, you know – Katie, you mentioned earlier that you, you weren't sure terms like the dream, for instance, were kind of amorphous at times. I, I read the dream as mainly being kind of America's national myth of um, or a rather white America's national myth mm. of sort of innocence, uh, innocence and goodness. And you get the mm. sense reading, especially towards the end when he when he kind of almost as an aside says that this the dream is also leading us to climate disaster. Yeah. In the sense that he really has no hope that like America, yeah. he believes American society is so consumed with its sense, its belief in its innocence, that is, it is unable to actually face face its vulnerability, face its um, its its you know, face its occasional evil, face its history of of plunder, right. you know, face its history of having taken this country from you know Native Americans. Come to terms with the fact that the United States is a country like any other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although, interestingly, he also says that he's going to hold America to its exceptionalist self-identity early on. Right, so he right. says part Early on, he says, part of this is about me trying to hold America to that, you know, to that because belief in itself. Also, it goes back to the question of essentialism, because it seems like in his heart of hearts, he's thinking that this beautiful myth that we've woven for ourselves or the idea that America occupies this hallowed place in like the pantheon of countries, like it's all contingent. It doesn't have to do with what is actually in the fiber of America. And so it's another one of these totally contingent systems that has nevertheless become inviolable and has shaped everyone's lives in these really 
powerful ways that he despairs of ever breaking. And I guess that's why I keep drilling down on anger and frustration, because that seems to be the logical response to the tension that, Megan, you were talking about, where you have something that's totally arbitrary and doesn't have to happen, and yet it does happen, and suddenly it's unshakable, and you can't lose it. And it's just so it's so unjust and so frustrating that this non-inevitable thing has like assumed the force of inevitability. Yeah. And to go back to the dream stuff that you were talking about, Jamel, I mean, one thing that I thought was really fascinating rhetorically about the use of the dream is that a lot of the examples he used about the dream were from television. And he was talking about the dream in terms of race, but of course there are many kinds of citizens in America who are not part of the dream for all sorts of reasons, right? And poverty, illness, et cetera, women, you know, or women who've been abused. And so it was just a very interesting the way he was using that as, you know, a kind of historical construct that was, you know, it was, as you say, it was the national myth that we are telling ourselves. And it does seem to me that this book has extraordinary resonance right now for a million reasons. One of them, a small reason, is that I think so much of America is feeling this sense of having of the total falseness of the dream. And at the same time, so much of America wants it. Wants it. <laughs> I was at a Donald Trump rally on Monday. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> dream Central. Um, in, in Dallas, Texas. And, you know, the closing line of his, I hesitate to call it a speech, more like performance, was, you know, one day you'll look back and you'll be able to tell your children that you made America great again. And what what else yeah. is this is mm. than this idea that that the dream is is our birthright? And that we have to take it by any means necessary. And that you can't even have, you can't even acknowledge the dream's reality, right? Right. You can't even say like, we are aspiring to this. You have to say, this is the truth. Right. <laughs> this has plagued some of our conversations about the wars we have been in. This has plagued, I mean, it's plagued many conversations. But I actually thought that was a very powerful, you know, that he really found a way to kind of animate this abstract what might otherwise have been an abstract discussion of nationalist myth-making. He really found this way to kind of powerfully animate it in how it affects a lived life and, and in fact, affects many lived lives, in fact. I'm still a little bit fuzzy about the relationship between the dream and the world, if you guys have any insights. In, when it just um, The book is called Between the World and Me, and I was wondering whether the world in that instance is kind of the world engulfed in the dream and he feels like being born black has separated him from this aspirational world that he wants to live in and can't, or whether the world is like the world of truth that's been shorn of all the dreams and the romance and the myth. Do you guys have a theory of that? Can you help me understand? I mean, I think it could mean several things. Like, it can be you can read it as between the dream and me, right? Mm -hmm. Like the dream is for a person born in a black body in the United States is an oppressive force, and this book is very much about the experience of that. It can be between the world as it is and me, which is sort of a variation on that same idea. I don't get the sense in reading the book that Coates wants any part of the dream. I think he sees mm -hmm. the dream as being. I'll, I'll reverse that a bit. I think he sees at the same time that black people are you know, under the boot of the dream, as it were, they're also liberated from yeah. believing in it. Yeah. He has some great passages where he talks about how in his vulnerability, Samory is closer to the meaning of life than these people who are zombies in the dream. 
He says, I would have you be a conscious citizen of this terrible and beautiful world. And he talks about how, you know, any person or group who has experienced some of the kinds of things he talks about here have a very firsthand understanding of the perniciousness of the dream. Between the World and Me is, of course, from a Richard Wright poem, right, right of the same title, which I've read long ago, but meant to reread before. Um, before. Yeah, I took it as maybe that which gets between the self and the world that he, cause you know, there's a, a big part of this book that we haven't talked about. A very interesting part about it is about Paris and about going to France for the first time and about how traveling abroad seems like this kind of frivolity almost, um, which to me was one of the moments that really powerfully illuminated, you know, some of what it was like to grow up as coats. Cause you know, I was never able to travel till I was older. My parents didn't have a lot of money and, but I always desperately wanted to. Right. And so to realize, okay, there's a position in which you feel like this, you would never even want to do this because it just seems so frivolous was a really powerful moment. But anyway, he ends up going to Paris and he has this experience of being there and sort of an almost like erotic experience of realizing the whole world is there. You know, the whole world is out there and kind of feeling, and this gets expressed in relationship to his son, you know, feeling like a certain sorrow that there was so much he never was able to kind of conceive of doing or experience or so much he didn't know until later in life because of some of the ways that he, that he grew up. And so that's a really power. Why did I start talking about Paris? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've had a really long day. Well, no. <laughs> I think it's also, I mean, his, his wife goes to Paris first and she's sort of his yeah. portal. And, and he says, I can't imagine why anyone would travel. It's like blowing your rent on a pink, a pink suit. suit. Yeah. And then I just, I found this so powerful. She comes back with a collection of photos of doors. And every time she's seen a big, beautiful door in Paris, she has snapped a photo and made it into an album and she presents it to me. And it just, I love those doors because it made me realize the eyes seeing the thing in the world makes such a difference. And there are people who, and I think Coates wants to say there are white people who are born feeling like masters of the universe. And when they see a door, they see an opening. They see something that they can pass mm -hmm. through. And there are other people, and he wants to say black people, and I agree with him. He makes this case incredibly powerfully, where they see a door and they see a barrier. They see something that's always shut. And it seemed like such a, a moment of revelation for him where he realized, no, I can see what's beyond that door. I can open that door. And then he decides to go to Paris. I love that. But he also has a bit of caution about that, too, because he, he again, as almost an aside, says, you know, there is a French stream, too, mm -hmm. right? That there are there are, yes, there there are bodies that have been thrown into the mall for the sleepers right. in France as well. Well, this is, I think, one thing that's so really, really wonderful about this book is the way that the reading of the book, he does a very, very delicate thing, which is he takes you through different stages of thinking where you think he still thinks something and then he modifies it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, right. You first get to Paris and it's kind of like, Oh, here's this world in which race is not constructed the way it is in America. I am not on the other side of a narrative in exactly the same way that I am in America. And it's liberating, right? He experiences it as a kind of liberation at first. I think that was why I was bringing up the world is sort of, you know, here's the world I'm starting to be able to experience it. And then very soon on the heels of that is the kind of realization of, no, in fact, there's a different kind of narrative here. And they talk, he talks about the Algerian cab driver that he and his wife have who say something, says something, you know, about the difficulties of being in France. And I think this is 
one reason I so, whatever questions I have about aspects of the book, one reason I so appreciate this book is that in a kind of milieu in which so much argumentative thinking can be kind of simplistic or just so bent on making you see one way, I mm-hmm. think something he's really good at is saying there's these things are really complicated and one answer might look like the answer at one moment and another answer might look like the answer at another moment and we are still sorting through how to think how to struggle these questions, you know, struggle through these questions. Okay. Well, when did you do this now in the 9-11? Yeah, oh, let's, yeah. let's 9-11. Yeah. Who brought up the 9-11? Megan, I was brought that up you? 9-11. Do you want to read the passage? Yeah. Well, yeah, I would just say, I think there's, you know, I was talking earlier about this quality of the book that I really appreciate, which is the way that he brings up something up and talks about how he thinks about it in one way and then changes how he thinks about it later. And actually an example of that is the horrible, you know, Saul Bellow line, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus, right? And he has a wonderful series of kind of riffing on how, (laughs) you know, how one might respond to that question, um, that abrasive and horrible question. But so a moment that I wonder about in terms of that is a moment that he talks about 9-11, which is, of course, a moment that uh, David Brooks brought up in his much reviled column, which we can also talk about. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he, he famously says, you know, that evening I stood on the roof of an apartment building with your mother, your aunt Shana, and her boyfriend Jamal. Everyone knew someone who knew someone who was missing, but looking out upon the ruins of America, my heart was cold. I had disasters all my own, you know, et cetera. I would never consider any American citizen pure. I was out of sync with the city. I kept thinking about how Southern Manhattan had always been ground zero for us. They auctioned our bodies down there in that same devastated and rightly named financial district. And he goes on and he says, I could see no difference between the officer who killed Prince Joan and the police who died or the firefighters who died. They were not human to me. This is a very powerful and very provocative passage, I think, for the reader. And I think the first time I read it, I had this very visceral reaction of incredible discomfort with it. And I think this is part of what David Brooks gets at in a, in a very, what I thought was a terrible column. But the more I read the book, I read the book several times, the more I thought, you know, this is again, one of the things he's doing is trying to kind of enact a feeling in you that complicates your view of things. And then maybe is not exactly, there is a past tense here, right? So one of the questions I have is like, is he still feeling this way? Or is the, I could see no difference between the officer, you know, is that a past tense that is very meaningful? And, you know, because the passage is so provocative, it forces you to think about it. And it made me really think that part of what he's getting at in this book that is really worthwhile, but also very troubling is that the wrongs of racism, you know, there's several kinds of wrongs here. One of the wrongs is just that racism is wrong, right? It's just deeply wrong. And the other wrong is of what racism ends up doing to you, right? Right. That it ends up distorting you. It ends up taking away a certain kind of human capacity to respond. And, you know, we see this in victimization, like sexual abuse victims too, right? Other kinds of victimization that really it's important to understand how deep the wrong goes. And part of the wrong is not that he's wrong to respond this way, but that it's wrong to have a society in which you end up allowing some of the citizens to feel looking out at it, that some people are not human. Yeah. Right. Because of course, when any, when we mourn, it's not because we're mourning purity, we're mourning something about humanity, but to be disenfranchised even from mourning is a very powerful... I just think this is an incredibly complex passage. But then sometimes I think maybe I'm reading it 
you know, the wrong way. But to me, that's how I end up reading this, this section of the book. The very simplistic response I first had was a sort of conversation with myself where I said, oh, this is horrible. I mean, these are, these right. are people who are dying and he, he doesn't feel for them. And then I thought, well, racism is horrible. <laughs> like our legacy is horrible. And maybe this is just almost a rhetorical gesture to like really bring that home to us. But I think you're right that it then sort of seeps into other points he's making about his own fallibility and the way he has to revise his own beliefs and no one is innocent. And he says, you know, I am human. And he talks about the way he, as we said, shed the sort of black nationalism identification and and started believing that race really was meaningless. And he is angry at himself for reacting in certain ways to provocations in the world. And I think you're right. It's a passage that's doing a lot of work and you, you have to struggle with it for sure. Jamal, I wonder if you have any... It wasn't something I was horrified by necessarily because I can I can very easily imagine feeling that way, but it's also not something I thought. It, to me, it read like something he was recounting from a previous version of himself, mm. and not. Yeah. And I'm I'm totally willing to let people have their those kinds of feelings and those kinds of emotions. I'm writing a book about illness, which is a very different kind of thing. But I've been thinking a lot about the anger that that sick people often have in a system that often doesn't even recognize their illness. And it does seem to me that one of the wounds of not having equal status, not ha- not having recognition, not having, is the wound of having to live with your anger, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a right. totally understandable one has these feelings. And this has been a very sensational passage that a lot of people have re- responded to very negatively. And I think that's a kind, I guess part of what I'm saying is I think probably that's ultimately, it's very, it feels viscerally very upsetting to me, you know, knowing people who's, knowing children whose parents died in that event and knowing firefighters who ended up being very sick because of what they were doing there. But I think that one has to experience that as a, as a form of realizing that, you know, when we (laughs) distort the value of other human beings, we're doing something very deeply wrong to that person. And this is the kind of level of anger and disconnect that we all end up having in certain moments in a country that is so fully bought into its own myth-making that it lives just in a, a reality that is not a reality. Yeah, and I think it's it's incredibly brave of him to, in the same way that he is willing to live in the disquiet of not having set values that he always returns to for meaning. Like, he lives in the damage of these systems and he doesn't deny the anger or the distortion. He really, he just, (laughs) he lives in it and he makes you live in it too for a little bit. So Jamel, for you, the lack of hope was a problem in this book. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a problem. It's just, it's, it's one of those things where, it's one of those cases where I sort of know where he's coming from. So like, I'm not, I'm not reading and sort of, I know a persistent critique of Coates that he doesn't offer any concrete Answers like he his most recent piece in the Atlantic on on mass incarceration doesn't really come with any solutions mm. other than kind of gesturing towards things uh, people have proposed. And for me, I'm not one to want someone to. I don't. I don't feel the need in someone giving having to both be descriptive and normative, right? Like I'm. I'm more than happy just to read someone where they are. And so here, I I understand that Coates does not believe in hope as like an organizing property of the universe. Uh, neither do I, uh, for that matter. And so I'm, I'm, you know, it doesn't, doesn't trouble me that he's not 
you're very much pushing against the the notion that that it is what troubles me is more sort of like an implication of his argument right that like if history is cont- if everything is contingent then then really everything is contingent and that includes the possibility for hope hmm. and so clo- and so admitting like acknowledging contingency on one hand and then closing uh, closing it off on the other hand seems to me to not be the right approach although I, I you know i see why the approach was taken i really appreciate that because i think it helps me find the language for that tension that i was feeling i was struggling with a bit as i read the book but it's not again that i wanted like some jingoistic program of hope and, and like you i feel i mean i would really defend this book making the choices it makes to not offer right. kind of answers i actually think that is for me a profound source of its integrity and power and the way that that implicates me as a reader, I, I really thought was just extraordinary. But you've really kind of identified something that it was there sort of burbling under the surface for me, which I just think is attention. Uh, the fact of the matter is that like, well, there are lots of people who offer answers. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are lots of answers <laughs> in the world and there actually are not enough people asking penetrating questions. Yeah. I have a probably not so penetrating question, but I did notice that Jack Hamilton in his review says, uh, this is a book written for white people more than black people. And then Ta-Nehisi Coates has, has come back with, I really don't care what white people think of this book, which is great. And then there's like David Brooks, who apparently believes that the book was written for his personal edification. But I was just wondering, who do you guys think this book is for? I take Coates at his word when he says that the book is for his son. I think the book is also a great representation of what black maleness feels like. Mm-hmm. I think there are elements of that, important elements, but there are just elements of that that also find parallel in the lives of black women. And beyond that, I, I do think it is for Americans writ large. I think yeah. the book is very much a book that ought to be read by you know people who are who, who call themselves Americans, who are invested in the American idea. Because it is illuminating and it is it raises important questions about what exactly it means to be an American who exists at the bottom of the case system and what it means in sort of a oblique way, what it means to be an American at the top of that case system and what do you do about it. Yeah, I think that's – I love that answer. And I think I was really thinking – I had just written um, something about Gwendolyn Brooks and her – movement into the black arts movement, which a lot of white critics at the time, you know, found very distressing, right? That she was abandoning, you know, the wonderful qualities of poetry and craft for this polemical political thing. And anyway, I was thinking about his answer, which by the way, I think was a totally erroneous response to her shifts in her poetry. But, um, you know, I think Coates's answer connected to that sense that the black arts movement wanted to, you know, it's like, you don't always want to have to be speaking to white people, right. That he wanted to write this to his son and, um, in some ways not worry about what that meant in in terms of how you might couch certain things or whether this is palatable to a certain kind of reader. And I think that's one of the virtues of the book is the way that it is a book that all Americans, um, is for all Americans, but the, maybe the directionality of its rhetoric is, um, you know, as, as, as Jamel said, toward his son, and that opens up certain kind of spaces that if it were written differently, wouldn't exist. Well, I love that. Um, thank you guys so much for doing this and shedding light on this really interesting and difficult to pin down book. Would you both recommend it? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. 
unqualified recommendation from me as well. Well, thanks again. This was fun. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is The Martian by Andy Weir. Read it and join us for our discussion in the first week of October. Slate's audiobook club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Slate Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Jamel Bowie and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Bye.